Hi, so good to be with you today, being a part of Team Ephesians. And I also want to say hi to Women in the Word out at the West Campus. We're excited to study Ephesians together. Uh, my name is Lynn Kitchens, and I'm part of the teaching team. Glad to be here. I love how Amy got us started on this book of Ephesians last week. She showed us this book is about the gifts and the grace of God in our lives. And remember, chapter one was like one gigantic, long run-on sentence, an English teacher's nightmare. But it was filled with uh, the blessings, the mercies of God, and we read it, and we felt warm, and we felt fuzzy inside and so when we get to chapter two and it opens up it kind of stops us in our tracks because he says and you were dead dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked and I thought what's what's Paul trying to do here he's reminding us of our spiritual journey lest we forget lest we lose perspective Lest we become proud. In order to understand how found we are, we have to remember just exactly how lost we really were. I went just a couple weeks ago. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm starting off with the wrong illustration. Okay, when I was a little girl. <laughs> just a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I was visiting my cousins. I was very young. I didn't live in their neighborhood. So my sister, my cousins, and kids in the neighborhood decide they want to ride their bikes and visit this abandoned house. And so we get out. We're all grabbing bikes. And, of course, they're one bike short. Who's the youngest one there? So they kindly say to me, you can run alongside us. Now, a smart kid might have thought, that's never going to work, but I must not have been too smart. So I start running, and I'm running alongside them, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran, and all of a sudden, I couldn't run anymore. And I stopped and watched with horror my sister and my cousins in the whole neighborhood ride out of sight. And then I take a breath and look around me, and I have no idea where I am at all and I knew I was lost in a strange neighborhood and there were some kids across the street and they were looking at me and there was a man mowing this big field on the other side of me so the kids came over to me because I began weeping and crying and just standing on the sidewalk I was very miserable and I remember this still today one of them said we could take her over to Mr. So-and-so the guy that's mowing the lawn. And one kid actually said, no, he might chop her up in his lawnmower. <laughs> this was so comforting to me. <laughs> More crying. One of the kids felt sorry for me, took me to his house. I wouldn't talk to the parents. I'm staring out their front door, their screen door. The parents are calling the police. And all of a sudden... I see the group on the bikes going back home. And I just pushed that screen door down and ran for my life. I could have won an Olympic medal. That's how fast I ran until I made it home. I didn't want to be lost anymore. It's no fun knowing when we're lost. But you know what's worse than that? 
when you don't even know that you're lost. When we're running, 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 and we're as lost as we can be. That's us. That's where our spiritual journey began. And it was true for all of us. Before you knew Christ, you were lost, and you didn't know you were lost. There is a path, though, that God has prepared for his creation. It's a path of peace, eternal peace, to individuals and to his church. But before we set our feet on his path, we were running, running, running down our own path in the opposite direction, ignorantly lost. That's what Paul wants to talk about in these first few verses. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you, I'd like you to circle that if you can in your Bible. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, you might be like me when you read this. In my heart, I'm thinking, whoa, that is one wicked, dark, vile, debauched individual. I'm glad that wasn't me. Even before I knew Christ, I wasn't that fleshly. I didn't commit those kind of big sins. I wasn't following Satan. So if Paul happened to be near me and I strolled over to him and I shared my thoughts about this, he would look me in the face and say, and you were dead in your sins. You were disobedient. You did follow Satan. You did live in the passions of your flesh. In fact, you were a child of wrath. You were lost and you didn't even know it. The prophet Isaiah would agree with us. Look on your verse sheet. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Our own path, our own road. And we may not make a conscious choice to rebel against God when we're on this road to destruction. But we've made a choice, even if we didn't realize it. Because if we aren't following God... We are following the prince of the power of the air. If we aren't walking in the spirit, guess how we're walking? In the flesh. If I'm living life my way, I'm being disobedient to God. Man in his natural state cannot be subject to the will of God. Look on your verse sheet, Romans 8. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 1 Corinthians, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Before salvation, we were all just strolling down the road to destruction, oblivious to the four giant potholes in the road. I want to look at those from these verses you, on the road to destruction, first you were lost in death. Paul said in these verses, you were dead as you walked in your trespasses and sins. Look what Proverbs says about that. 
There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We were going in the wrong direction. That was our path. We were not spiritually dead because we had committed sins. We were spiritually dead because we were in sin. That was our state. That's the existence that, of the person that is apart from God. The dying begins within us at birth because we were born with a sinful nature. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they bit into that forbidden fruit, guess who they passed that fruit on to? You and me. They passed that fruit on to us. They experienced death immediately. Death gripped them in their spirit immediately and in their bodies inevitably. And guess what? You don't have to be vulgar and crude outwardly to be dying inside spiritually. Amy had told us last week, remember, that Ephesus was this refined, sophisticated city. I've had the honor of being there, and I'm talking about marble roads. Everything was marble. Pillars as high as the ceiling. These were the people that Paul was talking to. Refined, sophisticated people. They can also die in their sins. Spiritual death doesn't have any favorites. We're all equally failures in achieving God's holiness. We may not lead equally sinful lives, but we are equally in the state of sin. Being dead while we live is the sad state of every unredeemed human being. A spiritually bankrupt person is alienated from God and therefore alienated from life. Look what John says about it. John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's our first pothole. Next one, we were lost in deceit. Paul says you were dead in your sins, and you were following the course of this world. The course of this world is not God's course. It is a crooked path that belongs to Satan. And the world, and we can see this around us every day, is deceived to believe that somehow this crooked path is going to fulfill my life. But the Apostle John tells us exactly what the path is. Look on your verse sheet, 1 John 2. For all that is in the world, the course of this world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So what is these things? The lust of the flesh, that deals with my appetites, what I selfishly want. The lust of the eyes deals with my imagination. What looks good? What I'm going to covet? The pride of life deals with just that, pride and a desire to look good to everyone else in the world. This is the world system of values, the world's way of doing things. It excludes God. And each generation following the next can step on and follow the people who have deceived them ahead of them. They follow people on that crooked path. And guess what? They kind of widen the path with their own you know, sinful, rebellious 
manners and attitudes that they have towards God for more people to follow later. Standing in the center of the path called course of this world is a very deceived self. A couple weeks ago, now I'll tell this story, uh, Cassie, my wonderful, beautiful daughter, and our little one-year-old granddaughter, Alice, were visiting my parents um, in Michigan. We were on the shore Lake Michigan, which is like being on the ocean, if any of you have been there. And I wanted a picture. So I ran to my car to get the camera, and I see there is no one on Lake Michigan where we are. Nobody. And all of a sudden, Cassie's in this deep discussion with this very needy woman and her very needy dog. This dog, like, (laughs) was scary looking. So I run down, and I want to take the picture. So my first thought is, I'm kind of annoyed This woman doesn't want to leave, and she's talking, talking, talking. I'm trying to get a cool picture with Cassie and Alice. And all of a sudden, it hits me. Word on the street. I'm slow. Word on the street. Word on the beach. (laughs) And I realize Cassie's been doing that with this woman. And so I pick up Alice and kind of go off and head to the parking lot. Cassie talks to her a while longer. The waves were big. The wind was blowing. This woman was talking, and Cassie said to her, if you got to the gates of heaven, and they said to you, why should we allow you to come in heaven? What would you say? And here was her answer, because I have loved. Okay, somewhere on the course of the world, on this crooked path, someone said to her, all you need is love. Anybody remember who that might be? (laughs) If you're my age, you do. All you need is love. Cassie shared the gospel with her, and the woman looked at her and said, some missionaries were here last week and told me the exact same thing. (laughs) Cassie said, God is trying to get your attention. Listen to him. Get on his path. Don't be deceived any longer. Next pothole. We were lost in domination. Paul says that we walked in this world's course following the prince of the power of the air. Now think about that. Do we ever really think about Satan in those kind of terms? The prince of the power of the air. I like to think of him in the earth, walking around hell with nothing better to do. A villain, not a prince. Prince of the power of the air, meaning the heavenly sphere around the earth. There is a demonic influence, a demonic force around this world. Satan is their prince. Three times in the book of John, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. Paul calls him, in a minute we'll see, the God of this world. We live in his domain, and apart from Christ, we are lost in domination to him. 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. You know, the lost person, they think they're free. They're doing their own thing. Yet in reality, they're always doing Satan's thing. He's eternally opposed to them doing God's thing. And this doesn't mean only doing evil things. This means believing wrong things. Wrong things about God. Wrong things about true life. It's almost like they're on this road to destruction and it's curving around. And Satan is always about a half a mile ahead of them. They never quite see him. He's always around a curve. But he's directing their actions and their attitudes and their beliefs as they follow him lost. Uh, my granddaughter Alice has this little toy that we bought her recently. We didn't know this about it. It's this little thing. It plays songs. And Cassie and I were listening to one of the songs the other day. And here's some words in it. I make things happen because I'm in control. That is a song on a little tiny girl's toy. I make things happen. I'm in control. Hey, the reality is, even when we think we're in control, if we're lost, there's a force behind us. There's a force ahead of us. Keeping us on that road to destruction. The lost are not free and independent. They are dominated by the hosts of hell. Okay, final pothole. We want to get off this subject. I can tell. <laughs> we were lost in disobedience. Paul says we're following Satan. We are, we're, he is at work in the sons of disobedience who carry out passions of their flesh and minds as children of wrath. Okay, these are heavy things. The lost are disobedient because in our nature we are an enemy of God. Look back on your verse sheet at the 1 Corinthians 2 again. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And I love that Paul brings himself and the Jewish race into play in this verse when he says, We all once lived in the passion of our flesh. Wow. Think about Paul. Was there anyone more godly? Was there anyone more religious? Was there anyone who followed every little religious law as close as he could? Yet he is saying here, he recognizes and admits that it was all done in his flesh. Not by the Spirit. All people apart from God live by the longings and the desires and the impulses of a self-centered life. It's a spirit that moves them. Paul describes these kind of people as children of wrath. And I want to say this. That phrase should really kind of make us shudder. The word children is to show the close relationship between a child and a parent. But what it implies here is these people are not in a close relationship with God. They're in a close relationship with God's wrath. Living in unbelief and disobedience is a road that leads to the wrath of God. 
There was a preacher named Dr. Tory. He preached a great sermon one Sunday, and it was called What to Do to Be Saved. And when it was over, he said this. You may be thinking next week I'll have a follow-up sermon. What to do to be lost. But he said, I'm not going to, because you know what? There's nothing to say. You won't have to do anything. That's where you are now. The question is whether you'll be saved or not. We didn't do anything to be lost. It was our nature. But then we have these wonderful words. We're so glad because we're tired of talking about the road to destruction. (laughs) And you, and you were in sin, were ruled by Satan, were deceived, were disobedient, were children of God's wrath. That is the very point you were when God rescued you. The first two words of verse 4, circle them, but God, but God, and you, but God. You know, I was thinking, I want to have these words like embroidered on a pillow, just to remind me of how I was rescued off the road to destruction, but God, ah, he rescued us, he set us on his path, let's look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved because of his mercy and love. And that means God's undeserved kindness toward us. The noun for love comes from a verb that means to seek the highest good for the one loved. When did God desire our highest good? When we were dead. When we were on that crooked path. That's when he desired it. When our hands were empty with nothing to give. When our hearts were cold with no understanding. When our minds were dark without truth. And I was thinking about Paul writing these words and thought, he can write it because he lived it. He lived it just like us. Proud, legalistic, self-righteous, on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. That was his road of destruction. Stopped in his tracks in the middle of the road by the love and mercy of God and rescued. God came to pull us off the path of death, brought us life, made us alive with Jesus Christ because he offered forgiveness of sins through Christ's work on the cross. New life can be received because of that. No wonder Paul calls God's love in these verses a great love. Someone said this morning in the Amplified Bible, intense love. That's who God is. How alive are we now? As alive as Jesus Christ is alive. Alive together with him. With him comes life. Look at 2 Timothy. 
which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then we are saved to share the glories of Christ. It's just unbelievable. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul uses language that explains the results of believing in the gospel. Look back over at chapter 1, verse 3. It's going to explain the verses that we just read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So these verses we just read, here's what they tell us. At the moment of our salvation... When we received Christ as our Savior, we share in his glory in three ways. First, we're made alive together in Christ just as divinely and miraculously as Christ was made alive. Jesus said, I am the life. He who has the Son has life. Secondly, we are raised with him just as powerfully and amazingly as Jesus Christ was raised. Meaning we are positionally resurrected. We're brought to new life. Our citizenship is now in heaven. The world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm in God's domain now. Not Satan's. I've been raised out of Satan's. Thirdly, we share... In Christ's glories, we are seated with him in the heavenly places, meaning we are pulled off the road to destruction. We are put on his path. He is our life. We are enthroned in fellowship with Jesus Christ forever. We are seated in the midst of the provision of God in constant praise and petition between us and God. Calvin said this, we are lifted from the deepest hell to heaven itself. That is true. That's what those verses tell us. Look at Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, how has this happened? Paul tells us you are saved by grace through faith. Did you notice how he mentions that twice? I think it's Paul's favorite way to just kind of sum up the gospel. Grace. Grace through faith. God's grace can be defined as his free, undeserved favor to mankind. And when we get to heaven, we can think about this. Will we find anyone walking around saying, hey, I made it. I think that last charity fundraiser I did got me here. (laughs) Wow. You know, I'm glad I worked so hard at being good. Are you going to find those people in heaven? No, we're all going to be staring at each other going, just think of it. When I was dead in my sins, in the middle of my sins, Christ called me and pulled me and forgave me. And God in his mercy has provided a place for me here. Our hearts will be filled with praise. We will join in all the hallelujahs that are being sung in heaven. That's who's going to be there. Whoever gets to heaven will be there in Christ 
We will not be there by our own efforts, our own wisdom, or our own virtue. We will get there by God's free and undeserved favor to mankind, grace through faith. And faith means this. We have believed and received the word of God, the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead for my sins. Um, I've talked in the past about my parents and kind of their slow journey of faith uh, when they were older. And it was so fun when we were just visiting them. I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask my mom that gate question, even though I ask her a lot of things. But sometimes I can't quite tell what she's thinking. And um, so we were at a lunch after church. She's um, 81 now. And I said to her, now I want to say this to you. They're really not in a church that you really kind of hear the gospel a lot. And they don't have any friends who really have been discipled. No one's ever discipled them. So we're all kind of trained in some of our terms and phrases and what our answers are. So I was kind of scared, and I said, you know, Mom, you're standing at the gate. What are you going to say? Why should they let you into heaven? And she paused a long time because she had to think, what? What is the right saying for that? And she looked at me real meekly and said, Believe. If I had asked her that question 30 years ago, she would have said, I love. She would have said, God is love. She would have said, I see God in the mountains. That was her favorite one. She would have said, I try to be good. Five years ago, she would have said, I don't know. Today, she says, belief. And then I kind of went on to say, what is it you believe in? (laughs) Praise God for that. A lost man came to a tent revival meeting, very worried. He missed the revival. He found the workmen tearing down the tent. So he grabbed the workman, and he was frantic, and he said, what can I do to be saved? And the workman said, can't do anything. It's too late. He said, what? What what do you mean? It's too late. It's too late. And he said, oh, yeah, the work's already been accomplished. There's nothing you can do but to believe it. That's faith in grace. The only possible attitude for sinful men standing before a holy God is total humble dependence on him. Look what Psalm 16 says. You make known to me the path of life. It's God who does it. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Okay, we're also saved to display God's goodness. Paul tells us you're going to be showing the riches of his grace. God's going to be doing that for us in kindness towards us in Christ. And we think that is such a huge blessing for us. But let's look at it a little closer. Salvation isn't only for our benefit. 
God's greater purpose is for his own sake. It's for his glory. And through his endless kindness towards us in Christ, the riches of his grace that are eternal, the Father is being glorified as he eternally blesses us. He's showing the riches of his grace. So from the moment of our salvation through the ages to come, we never stop receiving God's grace and kindness. And so the goodness of God will never stop being shown and demonstrated and displayed. We get to be a part of that. How awesome is that? We are his workmanship. He has prepared good works for us. To be a light on those people on the road to destruction. And as we do his works, we're like that light that says this is the goodness of God. When we're mopping a floor, when we're sharing the gospel, we aren't really caring about us. Guess who it shines a light on? God. That's the good works he has for us. But here's the most exciting part. Look at the last verse there that we just read. Verse 10. What are we supposed to do with those good works he gives us? Work them to death? What does that say? Walk in them. Walk in them. What does that mean? It means God's path is a walking path. Yay. It's a path of good works which he performs through us as we walk by faith. Our job is to walk by faith. His job is to do the good works through us. So we're not so much doing a work for God as we are walking with God so he can demonstrate his goodness through us. Look at Philippians 2. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when we think about those verses, we have to stop and say, God's path is a path of peace. For my soul. Peace for my soul. I'm off that crazy road of destruction. I'm on a path of peace. But there's also peace between nations that Paul talks about here. Because the purpose for man's salvation isn't limited to just giving new life to individuals. It's about taking those individuals, connecting them regardless of their background or their race, uniting them with other believers to become a people of God. And Paul wants to first remind the Gentile believers, you were in a dire situation, and I had a plan to make you, you Gentiles, a people of God. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember, Gentiles, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, we've been talking about the fact Israel was God's nation, called to be a holy nation, when all the other nations were worshiping man-made gods. I don't know how many. I'd say, I'd guess hundreds of man-made gods. But Israel was to serve the one true God. And they looked down on the pagan nations that surrounded them 
These were the Gentiles despised by the Jews. So there was a great spiritual and a great uh, social boundary that existed between the two. So in these verses, here's what we find out. First, the Gentiles weren't circumcised. And this was a mark of Israel's unique calling from God. Secondly, they were separated from Christ, meaning they had no hope of a Messiah like the Jews did. Thirdly, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning that they couldn't belong to this group of people and fellowship. They didn't have the spiritual privileges. They were cut off from the theocratic state of Israel. And theocratic means they had one king. It was to be God. No other nations were like that. Fourthly, they were strangers to Israel's covenant promises. They were deprived of this direct participation of these covenants. They had no hope of a future deliverer. They had no hope of a future glory. The covenants of Israel assured Israel a national existence, a land, a king, blessings. The Gentiles had none of that. Nothing. No hope. No hope in this world. Think about it. They didn't even have a history. They didn't have a future history. They were without God in the world. But we've got two words to circle again. But now Jesus Christ came on the scene and changed the plight of the Gentiles. Look at verse 13. Circle but now. In Christ Jesus, you who far, were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He made us both one, the Jew and the Gentile. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Gentiles who were way far off could now come near to God by means of Christ's sacrificial death, the blood that Christ shed covered the sins of both the Jew and the Gentile. First John 2 tells us he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This brought peace between the Gentile and Jewish believer where there had been also a spiritual and a physical wall that separated the two nations. In Jerusalem, between the main temple and the area where Gentiles could come, stood a stone wall. And history has shown that if you get that wall and look at it closely, written in Latin and Greek were the words that said, we forbid any foreigner to go beyond this. And if you do, get ready for death. We forget, forbid it under the pain of death. This same wall was in the heart of the Jew, opposed to the Gentile, separating them. And guess what held it up there? Their legalistic laws, 
their ordinances and they were a barrier because they called Israel clean, <coughs> excuse me, and every other nation unclean. What a barrier. But now that they know the Prince of Peace, how could that barrier stay up? When the Prince of Peace lived in both their hearts, how could the laws continue to separate when we approach God through his grace together? By his coming and his cross, he made both nations into one new man. <coughs> God now deals with Jews and Gentiles as one body. It's called the church. Believing Jews, believing Gentiles are now called Christians a whole new single entity, and Paul says, you both have access to God. You both have the Spirit. God's path is a path of peace for the Jews and the Gentiles. And let's look at closer look at the unity of believers, peace among believers. Look at verse 19. So then we're no longer strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens with saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Awesome. Okay, how many of you remember this is the church, this is steeple, so let's all do it. Get your church. Okay, get your steeple. You open the doors. You see all the people. Keep the people here. I want you to look at the people. Okay, you got Jews. You got Gentiles. You got Baptists. You got Lutherans. You got Methodists. You got Bible church people. You've got Asians. You've got Latinos, Europeans. Do you see the church? The peace that exists with people that are so different. That's what Christ does for us. We're united by faith. Even in our diversity, we can dwell in peace. Paul says we're fellow citizens of heaven, meaning we'll spend eternity together. <coughs> Excuse me. We are God's household, meaning we're his children. He's our father. We belong to each other. We are his holy temple. As the temple offered sacrifices, we offer spiritual sacrifices. We're being built into a spiritual house. We are a dwelling place for God's spirit. Wow. Wow. Together, we are the dwelling place for God's spirit. Isn't that awesome? And guess what? We don't ever have to feel alone again. If you stay connected to the household of God, you're never alone again. It's totally true. So the church is the vast spiritual body of the redeemed. But I have to say here, beware. There are lots of churches out there that aren't churches at all. Paul tells us a true church has two things. One, it must be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These are the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. They received the revelation of this body, the church, that was hidden in the Old Testament times. These are the men that taught divine revelation, which we now hold in our hands, our Bible. And we can realize since they were connected to the foundation, 
that their role was limited until the period when this New Testament canon was complete. There are no new apostles today because there's no new revelation to add to God's word. Their role gave way to evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We're going to look at that later in Ephesians. Secondly, a true church has Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, but uh, Jesus Christ of the Bible. There are other churches that say, yeah, yeah, he's our cornerstone of the Bible. Super important. The cornerstone was the major structural part of an ancient building. It had to be strong enough to support everything put on it. It also unified the entire building. Isn't that what the Prince of Peace does? Unifies us all. He does this for God's kingdom, God's family, and God's church. Each stone, each member of the church, fitted into him to find its place of usefulness for God's kingdom. We don't live out our faith alone. We are connected to each other. He connects all believers in order to honor him, bless each other. That's the church. Each of us is a stone I support the stone next to me. You support the stone next to you, even though none of us look alike. We are fitted together. So do we have a reason to rejoice today? We have lots of reasons. And you were lost on a road to destruction, but God made you alive with Christ, but now Christ is your peace today forevermore. Let me pray. We just want to say we rejoice, God. We know these things to be true. Praise you, praise you for your great love for us. May we remember it and pass it on to others. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.